Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Nick Cady. I'm joined today by Pastor Jason Crawley. Hey, Jason. Good day, Nick. Uh, thanks for having me on today. Good to have you. So for those who don't know you, Jason, you're the executive pastor here at Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. You were on a previous episode. It was the Ask Me Anything episode. That's right. But today I've got you back to talk about something theological. So Jason, maybe you could introduce the topic and kind of like how did we come about to talk about this recently? Yeah, we're uh, going to talk about Unitarianism, and really, it's come up a couple of times in the past year. We've had somebody in our church that has actually come out of a cult that believed Unitarian beliefs, and then re more recently, we've had a friend of somebody in our church that's struggling with Unitarianism. So it's just a, a great time to bring this up. Okay, what is Unitarianism? When you say that word, what do you mean? Ah, uh, yes, Unitarianism is... We, instead of, you know, uh, Orthodox Christianity believes in the Trinity and uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there is one God, three persons in the Godhead. The uh, Unitarians do not believe in a Trinity, and they believe that the Father basically is the only God and that Jesus was a created being. And so very distinct and different from a Trinitarian Orthodox belief. Okay, so it's a non-Trinitarian view. Right. And sometimes this is called biblical Unitarianism mm -hmm. because they base their Unitarian beliefs on an interpretation of the Bible. Right, right. Re more recently, in the past hundred years, they've been moving towards the biblical Unitarian name because it kind of lends them credibility. Look, we have the Bible, and it's a biblical mindset. It's a biblical proof to what we believe. But ironically, it's not biblical. <laughs> you know, so. interestingly, I ran into this in Hungary. So there were a few what we would call like uh, traditional churches in Hungary. So you had Roman Catholic, you've got Eastern Orthodox, you've got Greek Catholics. You also had and they would have in some cities, you know, interestingly, like every village, you know, they would have like a majority faith. And sometimes there were some villages in Eastern Hungary that are Unitarian villages, meaning that they, that was the main church in town was a Unitarian church. And to be honest, I wasn't always completely sure that I knew what that meant. I think I sometimes confused it with universalism. Right. So is a lot of there, people do. Is there a difference? Yeah, there is a difference. Universalism is more of, hey, everybody's invited to the picnic. We're all going. Well, and sure, everybody's invited, right? But I mean, it's saying oh, whether, right, right. Yeah, whether you want to go to the picnic or not, right. you're going to you're the You're going picnic, to the picnic. Well, the picnic's coming to you. <laughs> That's right. God's making you go. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't matter what you believe, you're still going. Yeah. Okay. So Unitarians, are, are Unitarians universalists or not? Sometimes they are, but Unitarianism is distinct from Universalism. Okay. But a lot of times they are connected. So when we say Unitarianism, it's a belief, it's a non-Trinitarian belief. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So do Unitarians, I'm, I might be getting ahead of where we're going right now, but I'm just mm -hmm. curious myself. I know that there are some, you know, there's a variety of what we call like Trinitarian heresies or anti-Trinitarian, non-Trinitarian heresies. Right. One of them is like modalism. Right. Modalism is a, it essentially says there's one God who sometimes manifests in different modes. Right. So sometimes he manifests as the Father, other times then he shows up as the Son, 
and in other ways he manifests himself as the spirit. And so sometimes you'll hear these analogies or they'll say, okay, here's a good way to understand the Trinity. And then they give you a very bad way to understand the Trinity. <laughs> here's an egg. Yeah, the <laughs> egg, right? Which has a shell right. and it has a yolk and it has the egg white. The problem is that those things are all parts. That's called partialism. Yeah, right. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Okay. So that's one Trinitarian heresy would be partialism. Another one is modalism. So another one would, a good example of that would be to say, Hey, you know what the Trinity's like? It's like water, which can show up in three different forms. Water can be yeah. a solid when it's ice. It can be a gas when it is vapor. And it can be a liquid when it's water. That That's a good example of modalism. Yeah, say exactly. These are modes of the same thing. The problem is that one doesn't exist at the same time as the other. Which I've heard every single one of those preached by Trinitarianists trying to explain the Trinity, but they don't. Yeah. There's actually a really great video, by the way, on this. I think it's by Lutheran Satire. Have you ever seen this one? Well, we can put a link to it in the show notes, but it's St. Patrick talking about Trinitarian heresies. Anyway, it's really funny. And then it ends with the creed, the Athanasian creed, which is actually not from Athanasius. The, the original Athanasius might be from a later version, but it's called the Athanasian Creed, which is essentially a creed which explains the Trinity in an orthodox way. Mm. And it doesn't use water or an egg. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. That happens. Okay. So let's talk about this. Now we have been saying that Unitarianism is, I think we've either been implying or saying that it is incorrect, even heretical. Right. So let's explain yeah. the history of that and why we think that. It does have a history. Unitarianism is actually a form of Arianism. Not to be confused with like, you know, Arianism with, you know, Germany. Like the Aryan nation? The Aryan nations. No, a totally different Arianism. But Arianism, based off of a man, he was actually a, a priest in Alexandria, Egypt, in the early 4th century, and his name was Arian. And he thought... Arius. Arius, you're right. Yes, yes, you're right. He thought that that... Jesus was a created being. And that's really, you know, you really get into the problems where, you know, he doesn't think that Jesus is equal to the Father. He thinks that he's a different type of just a created being given divine attributes. So he's this kind of, this kind of a semi-divine individual. He's not divine on his own, but he was created and given divine attributes. Mm -hmm. And Arian, excuse me, Arius, Arius kind of, he, he thinks that Jesus was the first of all creation born before creation happens. And so that's really the difference between the modern Unitarian movement is that they believe nowadays that Jesus didn't exist before his birth. Yes. And so that's really the there main was a difference. Time, there was a time when Jesus was not. Yeah, that's the key to Arianism. Mm -hmm. Arian heresy believes that there was a time Jesus was not. And that's the key. If you ever hear that, you know you're looking at a version of Arianism. And so that's exactly what Unitarianism is. And so they're going to be pointing to a few verses. But mm -hmm. before we do that, let me just say, like, okay, what are some Arian, modern-day Arianist groups that we could name? Right. Right. There's the, the, the two most famous is the Jehovah Witnesses 
and the Mormons. Yes. They both believe that there was a time where Jesus was not. Mm -hmm. uh, there are other small cults and uprisings that believe this, but uh, nothing as big as the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons. Right. Okay. Now, why do they believe this? Like, let's give them at least a hearing. Right. What, are, what are their best arguments? The, it's kind of the same as it was back in, in you know, the original heresies when they arose. Because, you know, Arianism is, is really the first major heresy that had an ecumenical council for. You know, Constantine comes into power and then he wants to take care of Arianism. And what the reason why they start to get off track is they are applying human logic to the scriptures. You know, back in, you know, the early fourth century, when this was the fir first started, you have an absence of the apostles and those who have learned from the apostles. So now you, for the first time, you have people who are really trying to think over these problems and they don't have the direction of the apostles anymore. They have their writings, but they're pouring over the writings in almost a vacuum. They don't have all these books and, you know, the internet that we have nowadays. They don't have 2,000 years of scholarship. And so you can almost understand a little bit of the original individuals. They're, you know, they're just trying to work through how the Trinity works. Who, who, who's Jesus? Mm -hmm. But nowadays you find the same issue where you end up people going through the Bible in a vacuum. They don't, they almost pride themselves in not caring about 2000 years of scholarship. Yes. They want to come up just them in the Bible. Yeah. And they come up with these ideas that, you know, quite frankly, they just don't follow an orthodox view. Every Bible for itself, right? Every right. person with a Bible for themselves. Right. And, you know, actually, I wrote a lot on this when I was in seminary because this does get to the matter of what I got my master's in, which is theological method and how you do theology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we would say there are five recognized sources of theology. And how you apply those sources will lead you to, especially in relation to each other, will lead you to the different conclusions that you might reach. And this, what you're talking about right now, there was a time in American history where this was very popular. Mm -hmm. It's called Scottish common sense realism is actually what this philosophical mindset is, where you get like, it's, I've got the Bible and it's common sense. I'm just going to read it. And I know what it says. Yeah. And actually this is the time period in American history, which would be the mid to late 1800s. This is a time of, for example, Abraham Lincoln, who never went to church, but said that he read the Bible all the time and came to certain conclusions, which he would say, you know, are obvious. Right. The problem is that you, that people come to different conclusions, which they all believe are obvious. Yeah. And they can't all be true at the same time, right? Okay, yeah. so this is also the period, by the way, when the Jehovah's Witnesses came about, which was one guy saying, well, forget all the other people who've come before me. Forget the fact that this, you know, Arianism was dealt with in the fourth century and everybody came to an agreement that this is what the Bible is teaching. Well, forget all that. I, that guy, Charles, whatever his name was, who started the Jehovah's Witness group. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's like, well, I don't care what they said. Here's what I think. And drew a following to himself. Then you got the Mormons 
doing the same thing. Well, forget scholarship. Here's what this guy thinks, right? And yeah, I think that's really interesting, but how we do theology really matters. And I think you bring up a great point. The one thing that they did have back then, though, they did have the writings of the church fathers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you're talking about Arius comes about. Now, you mentioned Constantine. I just want to reference that quickly because some people just heard you say Constantine and they said, oh, no, that guy's bad, period, right? And here's what happened, though, with that. And I, we've talked about this in a few earlier episodes of the podcast. Constantine comes to power, and what he does is he issues the Edict of Toleration mm-hmm. in 300... Three, yeah, the yeah, Edict of like Milan, also called the Edict of Toleration, right. which for the first time in history recognizes Christianity as a legal religion. It's, mm-hmm. it's allowed, it's permitted, it's tolerated. And so at that point, he himself claims to be a Christian. Now, whether he was or not is a matter of historical debate, but he starts looking around and he notices, well, these Christians believe that Jesus isn't God, but you Christians believe that he is God. You guys should sort this out. Right. So he recommends that there be an ecumenical council in Nicaea, which is near Constantinople or Istanbul as we know it today. And he says, you guys, you know, basically come to my place. I'll set you up, get everybody around the table. And there were a lot of them, hundreds who came to this. Oh, absolutely. There was, yeah, like 318. Bishops, meaning regional leaders. Yep. Coming together. And the purpose was to determine what do the scriptures teach? He calls this council together. And that is what's known as the first council of Nicaea, which sometimes called the first great ecumenical council. And when we say ecumenical, sometimes today we hear that and we think, oh, you know, ecumenical means that you are working with people who have different beliefs. But that wasn't what it meant at that time. What it meant is get all the leaders of the the regions, Christian bishops, together, and we need to come to a consensus about this because it's really important. So tell us a little bit more about what happened after that. Yeah, I mean, he really wants unity in the kingdom. I mean, he's the emperor of the kingdom. He wants unity. He wants everybody to understand uh, this is Christianity, one religion, all agreeing. It's really going to create unity in the kingdom. So that's what he does with the Nicene Creed. They they form a, a creed, a document. This is our beliefs. And the Unitarians actually use that as evidence for there not being a trinity because in AD 325, they, they write the Nicene Creed, but then in, it doesn't really hold in many areas because the descendants of Constantine, some of them are Arians. And so it does So they have to rewrite it in 381 and make it more Trinitarian. And that's the Nicene-Constantinople Creed. Right, yeah. Which is actually what our church uses on our website. It, absolutely, that's a good point. And so they rewrite it and make it, make it more, because make it more Trinitarian because of there's people are still getting around it. Yeah. And they're finding holes. And so they rewrite it, make it more in depth. And so Unitarians will often say, see, you can see in the creeds formulation of there's no Trinity, then there is Trinity. So, the, so they're creating a Trinity in, in the creeds. But you can, but the, the big problem is that you know, if you don't know church history, then you can come up with that. If you're, if you're creating this in a vacuum, and if you don't read the church fathers, there are church fathers actually 
quite a few that have, you know, written about the Trinity before that. I mean, you have Ignatius, Polycarp, you know, Tertullian, you know, there's a few different church fathers before the creeds were even written who were writing about the Trinity. So they try and use that to say, see no Trinity. And then they created one in 381. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, the historical church fathers and writings, they don't back that up. Yeah, well, that's good to know. But I think, you know, we would also point out the fact that the real measure of this is like, what does the, what do the scriptures say? That's the biggest importance. And Unitarians will often, I mean, they have two ways of combating that uh, or approving their point. They have Old Testament and New Testament. Mm -hmm. Old Testament, they try and go through prophecies saying, well, the prophecies foretell that, that the Messiah will be human, not God, human. And so they'll say, see, the, the prophecies show that he'll be human, which is true. The prophecies do show he'll be human, but they also show he'll be God. He'll be divine. He'll be sure. divine. Yeah. You know, and you can look at Isaiah 9. I mean, it says he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This is to us a, a, a son is given. Yes. A child is given. A son is born, right? Which mm. tells us a human child, human child. will be born. Right. Who will be called? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Okay, so a child is going to be born into this world. Yeah. And the government will be upon his shoulders, it says in the next verse. Mm -hmm. And that child will be the everlasting father. And we know who that is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jesus. And mighty God, I think, you know, in case it wasn't clear. If we Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it uses the word God. So a child so. who will be God and who will be the father. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that that's really hard to It's hard refute. to combat. But they'll say, they, they'll try and refute that with saying, well, the Jewish people at the time didn't understand that he would be God. He, they understood it, that he would be human only. But, you know, we look back and they didn't understand a lot of prophecies. Uh, yeah. They didn't really stand They misunderstood a ton of prophecies about Jesus. Mm -hmm. So we really can't just say, well, what they understood was, was right. Yeah. You know, they thought he was, Jesus would come and set up an earthly kingdom. Right. Uh, well, and, and again, that will happen. It's it will. just a matter of the timing. Timing is and, off. And all of that. Yeah. <laughs> so. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Justin Thomas, president of Calvary Chapel Bible College. I want to invite you to visit our beautiful new campus located in the mountains of Southern California. CCBC offers a unique blend of theological training and practical education, equipping students to make a difference. With experienced faculty, supportive community, and a commitment to excellence, CCBC is the perfect foundation for every calling in life and ministry. If you or anyone you know is looking for a place to grow, check us out at ccbc.info. CCBC, a solid foundation for every calling. You know, I just want to, so we don't get too far past Arian and Arianism and Constantine. Hmm. One of my favorite things that happened at that Council of Nicaea in 325 AD was that, you know, that Nicholas of Mira, which is St. Nicholas, Saint Nicholas. Right? we talk about St. Nick, Santa Claus, 
he was not from the North Pole. He was from Southern Turkey, kind of what we call the Turkish Riviera. Yeah, very different. Yeah, like <laughs> white sand beaches and palm trees. Right. And he went to the Council of Nicaea. And there's a, a story told that he actually got so mad at Arius for saying these things, saying that Jesus wasn't God, that he essentially punched him out. Punched him out. Yeah. I see. that's the kind of Santa Claus I, I like to oh, tell yeah. my kids about. Like, Dad, is Santa real? Well, guess what, kids? He is. He was a pastor who loved Jesus, helped the poor, and punched out heretics. Yeah, his, his was he real? Well, his uh, <laughs> yeah, his right cross. It was very real. <laughs> yeah. So, getting back to where we were. Okay, so let's let's just talk about this. Um, there's there's one verse that I think they'll sometimes you know point out as a kind of argument for Unitarianism. Now there are several, but I'll I'll give you one that I've heard used a lot, and that is Colossians one verse fifteen. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Right. And they'll say, well, in other words, when God was creating the world, the first being that He created was Jesus, and then through Jesus, He created everything else because it says by him or through him, all things were created. So that's kind of what they explain. They say there's no way to get around that. It says that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. So what is the response to that? Yeah, that's it's a, interesting because Unitarians are, are split. Most of them believe that he was created when the birth happened, but there's a lot of them that believe he was the first of creation. Historically, that's what it was. And so this is really the firstborn. You have to look at the culture of the writings. What did what culture was the writing coming out of? If we impress our you know twenty first century uh, culture and lay it upon the Bible, we're going to get a lot of different issues that are just wrong because they're not writing from our culture. In their culture. Firstborn is status. Mm -hmm. That's a positional thing. It's not literally he was the number one person born. If you were to talk about the firstborn in the ancient Near East culture, which Jesus is from and the apostles who are writing, you'd really get that this is a status that he is firstborn status wise. He's not the firstborn physically born like we would say because we don't live in their culture. Mm -hmm. And so what does the author mean when he writes this? You know, he means that he is the firstborn status-wise, as in the firstborn is represents the father. Mm -hmm. The firstborn has the same rights as the father. Yeah. The firstborn, there's so much that goes with the firstborn. So, yeah, and historically, right? This is called the law of primogeniture, which means firstborn, right? But the law of primogeniture essentially means exactly what you're saying. Let's say in court or legally, the firstborn was the same as the father. In essence, like, you know, you got to go and do something at the some office. The firstborn son could go, and he essentially was the same Right. legally as the father. Yeah. And so that's the whole idea there that of, out of all creation, no one's equal to the father except for the son. 
except for the firstborn. In yep. their culture, they would completely understand what that means. Yes. In our culture, we need to explain it because the firstborn is just the kid who gets the most chores and has to raise the second kid. You yeah, know? yeah. And and it's the kid who literally came out first. Right, yeah. Well, where in this case, that's not what's being talked about here. It's being talked about as a status. It's a birthright. A birthright, yeah. You okay, know. so that's good. I want to dial a little bit more into anything else you had to say about Arianism. I mean, so Arianism at the Council of Nicaea was determined to be heretical. Right. Yeah, it was absolutely considered to be heretical. And there was, you know, when they were done, there was no contest. It was heresy. And so today it's still heresy. It is what it is. The Bible points that Jesus was not a created being. He is a part of the Trinity. And, you know, you can look at all kinds of different evidences in the, in the Bible that really point that Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is fully divine, fully God. You know, you can look at his, I'm lost of words, but the attributes, there you go, the divine attributes that God ha that Jesus has that are very divine. They're, they uh, if you look at, you know, he's omnipotent, omnipresent, you know, all the omnis, you know, he create, he created all things. He holds the universe together with his power, Hebrews says. There's so many different, he forgives sins, which the people, when he's there, take up stones to kill him because they realize what he's saying. Mm -hmm. You know, he's saying, I'm God, I forgive sins. Same way when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Which is bad grammar, but good theology. But, but good theology. They try and kill him because they realize he's saying he's God. And so Jesus says he's God. He has the attributes of God. So we can say attributes and actions. Yeah. He is things that only God is. And he does things that only God can do. Absolutely. O only God can forgive sins. Everybody in the crowd recognizes only God can do these things. And that's why they try and kill him because he's proclaiming he's God by doing these things and saying these things. And, you know, I, I can't remember. You, you spoke a little bit about, I think it's C.S. Lewis that said he's either lunatic. Oh, no, it was McDowell. Dominic Doan. It's a very famous thing. And yeah. It's been repeated. It was repeated by Josh McDowell in more than a oh, carpenter. Oh, that's, yeah. But You're either... Liar, liar, lunatic, lunatic, or Lord, or Lord, right? Yeah, and it has to be those. He's claiming to be God, so he has to either be a liar or a lunatic, or he is what he says he is. You know, you can't say that Jesus, for example, the Jehovah Witnesses say Jesus never accepted worship, so he's not God. Well, he did accept worship. I'll on give you an example. Multiple occasions. I'll give you one example when he received worship. It says in Matthew twenty-eight, verse seventeen that he met his disciples after his resurrection on a hill in Galilee, and they worshipped him. And he did not stop them, Yeah, but he received it. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is worshipped and receives it, whereas an angel, John bows down before an angel in the book of Revelation, and the angel says, hang on a second, bro. Yeah, whoa, what, whoa. what do you think you're doing? Right. And he says, hey, you know. In other words, it's a very big deal to be worshipped and to receive worship for example, in Acts chapter 12, Herod Agrippa is killed by God because he receives worship inappropriately. 
which is a pretty big deal to receive worship if you're not deserving of it. And Jesus definitely receives worship, at least in Matthew 28, verse 17, and in the book of Revelation. And there might be other places as there well. Are, yeah, there's definitely other places. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's very significant because God in the Bible is a very jealous God who does not like idolatry. And so if we are worshiping Jesus, basically, we're, if the Unitarians are correct, Jesus is a created being, that's idolatry. Mm-hmm. We're worshiping a created being, and somehow, according to them, God is okay with us worshiping a created being which doesn't jive with the God of the Bible. He's right. a jealous God, does not like sharing worship. Yeah. So that, you know, that's a pretty big problem. Yeah. Okay, give me a few. Uh, you wrote a really good document, and um, I would just like you to go through some of these reasons or refutations of Unitarian beliefs. Ah, uh, yes. Well, some of them we've already covered that, you know, the Old Testament says that he's a man. Yeah, he is a man. The Old Testament, the New Testament teaches that he's a man. Absolutely teaches that he's a man. He's, he's a man, but he, it also teaches that he's divine. And then we, we, we've already talked about a lot of that. The Bible says, the, the Unitarians would say, the Bible teaches that he's a created being. Uh, he, it's impossible for him to be a created being when he preexisted his birth, according to the Bible. You know, he before Abraham was, I am, you know, he talks about, he created all things. Therefore he had to have existed prior to his birth. The idea that, you know, he's holding the universe together by his power. He had to have predated his birth. There's, I mean, it's impossible. Did God just, did God create everything and say, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm giving it to you, Jesus. I'm yeah. passing this along yeah. and you can do it from now on. It's exhausting. Right. It's like when I ask my kid to mow the lawn. Right. You do it. You've come of age. Yeah. You can now do this for me. Yeah. Well, okay. You mentioned, Jesus said, I am, which is, as we said, bad grammar, but good theology. Right. Now, even that, like using that phrase, I am, which Jesus does seven times. Seven I am statements, right. which would have been very triggering because those were, that was full of baggage because I am is the name that God gave to Moses in the wilderness when he said, who shall I say sent me when I go talk to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Yeah. Um, he says, I am who I am, which by the way, you ever wonder where the word Yahweh comes from? It comes from the Hebrew word for to be or I am, I am. right? And so essentially Jesus is saying, I am Yahweh. I am the God who sent Moses to Pharaoh to, you know, command that my people be set free to worship me. And, you know, he used it seven times and people get upset by it. Very upset. They want to kill him. Yeah. They, I think they did kill him. Hey, spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah. But. He didn't stay dead. That's right. Which good is news. Pretty good news. Look yep. at the end of the book. We yep. win. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. And I think that one of the interesting uh, arguments that they make is that Jesus has a God, mm-hmm. they say. He cries out many times. He'll call the Father his God. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's crying out He that the man Jesus has a God, therefore he is not divine. Right. That's one of their arguments. Why doesn't he say me? Yeah. 
why am I forsaking myself? Yeah. You know. Now, to be clear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A direct quote from Psalm 22. Yeah, which I think is fascinating that he's he's quoting that as he's, you know, I, I got to tell you, I wouldn't have the frame of mind to be quoting scripture. Yeah. There'd be a lot of more yelling. <laughs> so. Okay. So what's your response to the idea that well, Jesus has a God? He's, he, Jesus has two natures. He is a full human nature and a full divine nature. And that makes up Jesus now and for, forevermore. Because when he came down and was in, uh, incarnated, he took on a human nature. And so the human nature, you know, humbles himself. You know, Jesus humbles himself and he really cooperates with the limitations of being human. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of things. He's hungry. He, you know, he grows up. He's, he's, he's human. And Jesus, the man, had somebody who he called God. That was the father. And so you really have Jesus, who has a human nature, still has a human nature, and will always have a human nature. His human nature cries out to God, the Father, for God. He communicates, if you think about before he was incarnated, they were in perfect harmony, communicating, talking. And when he comes down to earth, he's still talking to his Father. He's still communicating. It's the human nature in him. And they really make the mistake of, it's called the logical fallacy of equivocation. And you have this issue where they're changing the word and not understanding the usage of the word, in this case, would be God. For example, saying the Trinity teaches that God consists of three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, is very different than saying that the Father is God, the, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Now, they both are correct, but the first sentence is really talking about a quantitative idea of who is God. You know, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, quantitatively, they're all God. And the second sentence that says, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, that's really a qualitative dealing with the nature of divinity. Is this one God? Yes. Is that God? Yeah, they, they're, they're God. And so the Unitarians are confusing the, the qualitative with the quantitative, and they're saying that Jesus, Jesus is qualitatively stating, or I'm sorry, I'm saying that Jesus is qualitatively stating that the Father is God, and he's not quantitatively saying that the Father is the only God. Well, he is the only God, but it's saying that he's not God, it's, Jesus is not quantitatively stating that oh, yeah, only right. the Father is God and that he is not. Yeah, I just spoke heresy there. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean, that he's, that only the Father is, the God, is God and he is not God. Because whenever he says, you, Father, are God, he's saying, I am God, because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Yes, and I think that that's an interesting statement, and I'll tell you why. Because in order to have a Unitarian interpretation of that, mm -hmm. I think it's kind of, honestly, it's a weak interpretation. And I'll tell you why. Because here's, here's what they say. They say, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And then people got angry that he said that. Very. And so the Unitarian explanation of that verse is that Jesus was saying, not that we are of the same substance or same 
divine being, but rather, you know, me and the father, we are vibing on the same wavelength. Like we're of the same mind, but that wouldn't make people upset because the Jewish people, especially the Jewish religious leaders, they believed that they were vibing with God on the same wavelength. They thought that they were of the same mind as God. So Jesus wouldn't have been saying something that would have been controversial if that's what he was saying. But if he's saying what it sounds like he's saying, which is I and the father are one, then it makes sense that they're upset because he's claiming divinity. Yeah. And it just doesn't make sense if that's not what he's saying. Why would they want to kill him for being on the same wavelength as God? You know, he says it again, you know, in John 10, he states that the father is in him and he is in the father. You know, they understand what that means. You know, it doesn't mean that, you know, we just get along really well and we're on the same plane. You know, he he knows what he's saying and everybody knows it around him. Yeah. Okay. How about this one? Jesus called the father, the only true God. This is another Unitarian claim for Unitarian belief. Right. That he's the only true God is, you know, again, saying that if I'm Jesus, I am not God, he's God. But again, Jesus is saying that we're one. Mm-hmm. I and the father are one. So if he's claiming that he's God, then he's also, Jesus is also divine. Because, you know, they're he one. The father one. So the triune God is the one true God. So by saying right. that God is the only, that the father is the only true God, that doesn't negate the fact that Jesus is also the only true God. Right. He has to, he's speaking qualitatively, not quantitatively that, you know, who's God and who isn't God. Mm-hmm. He's saying the father is God. And yeah, that, that means I'm God too. You know, it's not one or the other, which the, you know, logic, logic would say, you know, if you don't understand the rest of the scripture, then you could fall into that trap. But you have to look at all the scripture together in order to formulate a theology, especially one as important and foundational as the Trinity. Yeah. And then I guess you could talk about the Holy Spirit, but usually this is a debate about Jesus. Usually it, it surrounds Jesus, but they do believe that the Holy Spirit is basically the Father, mm-hmm. and which doesn't really jive because if you think about it, the Holy Spirit is distinct from the Father, which we believe, and the, the Father sends the Holy Spirit, according to John 14. The Spirit does the will of the Father, according to Romans, and then you know, Jesus also said that the Holy Spirit is mentioned with, he, he mentioned, sorry, he mentions the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son in the Great Commission. So if, if the, the Holy Spirit isn't separate, it just, it, you have a hard time making sense of that. Yeah. And also the Holy Spirit is attributed with doing things that only God can do. And in Acts chapter five, to lie to God, yeah. he then says, you've lied to God. And then he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And so wait, did you have two lies or was there one lie and lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God because the Holy Spirit is God. Another interesting thing is that there are a few occasions where you see the father, son, and spirit essentially present at the same time, which gets rid of the idea of modalism, right? Right. Which is that like, for example, at Jesus' baptism, you see the voice of the father the sun in the water and the spirit descending like a dove showing us all three as being distinct and yet God. 
Okay, let's talk about this a little bit. One of the, you know, some of the people who put a lot of work into defining this, and again, I say defining it because it's not that these people made this up or created this belief in Trinitarian, in a Trinitarian deity. It's rather that they determined, okay, what, how does it work biblically? And let's come up with a formulation. And some of the people who put a lot of work into that early on were the Cappadocian fathers, who are Greek-speaking theologians from Cappadocia, which is modern-day Turkey. Mm-hmm. And so the Cappadocian fathers, and they put a lot of work into this thought of what they called ausia. Ausia means substance or essence. And so they, they really differentiated between person and essence. And sometimes when you're reading this, it, you know, you read what they wrote and is, it seems very abstract. Like your eyes are starting to glaze over as you're reading it and you're like, Oh, but you, but once you understand the concept, it's very right. helpful. Yeah. And essentially what they're saying is what we've been saying all along. Three distinct persons who are of the same essence. Right. And that essence is divinity. Right. Yes. And so there's one God who is eternally present in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father's God, the Son's God, the Holy Spirit's God, but the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Son nor the Father. And they're eternally, eternally coexistent. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and, and yet within that, we, we sometimes talk about this theologically. We talk about the difference between what we call the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. Mm. Ontological has to do with essence and being, nature. Right. Economic has to do with function. Functionality, yeah. Right. And so we see, for example, that there are certain functions which one person of the Trinity might be attributed with more than the others, mm-hmm. although there's a ton of crossover. Oh, yeah. Right? So you say, okay, the Father created the world. Okay, yeah, but also the Son and the Spirit also are attributed with creating the world. Yeah. You could say that the Son is attributed with the work of salvation, but also the Father and the Spirit are attributed to work of salvation as well in the Scriptures. But like, for example, it says that the Spirit tends to be more associated in the Scriptures, like in the book of Romans, chapter 8, with the work of sanctification. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's God who sanctifies, right? And so, right. I think that the more you look at it, that's where these people who read the Scriptures early on, they said, well, let's try and try and make a formula out of this but understanding that it's going to be something that is very different than anything else that you encounter in this natural world. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's, it's a mystery because logically it doesn't quite make sense to our finite minds that there can be one God and three persons in it. But I mean, it is. Yeah. So we can understand that that's what the scriptures say. Right. As far as the the details of how that works out and interworkings and how that's yeah. possible, I think that's where we have to say, wow, there's nothing else like that. There's nothing oh, we can compare nothing. it to. And I like how the Eastern Orthodoxy kind of breaks that down even more. We in the West will say they have the same essence. East, East, in the East, they will say, well, what is the essence? And they'll say that's the attributes. Mm. The essence are the attributes of God. They have the exact same attributes, every single one. And so they break it down a little bit more, which I think is kind of interesting. But it's true. The same essence. You know, none of us have the same essence. Mm. We're all different. 
but they are the same. And that's fascinating. I think that the, the big issue, you know, wrapping up Unitarianism, the big issue with Unitarianism is if they are, you know, to follow logically with their arguments, you really end up with a creation who is responsible for saving humanity. Mm. And you end up with, you know, can, can a creation really save us? It's a creation, you know. Mm. Can you end up with a creation hearing prayers and being worshipped? You yes. know, no, you can't. And along with that, it becomes salvation by proxy. Think about it like this. Yeah. It's not God who saves, which, by the way, is the essence of what Jesus' name means, Yeshua, God who saves, which is why Matthew one twenty one, you shall name him Jesus. Yeah. His parents were told mm -hmm. because he will save, he will save his people from their sins. Yeah. That's really important. Okay. But another one is like, the question then is, are the acts of Jesus the acts of God, specifically the saving acts? Or is he essentially God, you know, farmed it out? Right. He got somebody or made somebody who then would do the deeds in order to save us. Well, if Jesus is God, which of course I believe that he is, I believe the scriptures right. clearly teach that, and Christians, the great majority of Christians throughout all of history have believed that. Right. Then it changes the saving work of Jesus to actually being God who himself comes to us and saves us. Yeah. And that's very significant, very powerful and meaningful. Yeah. It's a, it puts God as the hero of the story who Jesus is God, instead of putting the hero as a created being, you know, who is exalt. So we're basically exalting the created. Yeah. And it also makes more sense of the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, it's always talking about God will save you. God will come to you. Yes. God will rescue you. It's always God. And then it's like, well, who's this guy now? It's like, I know oh, I will save you, but hey, look at this guy. He's really good. <laughs> yeah. In other words, it makes more sense. The continuity of the Old Testament remains right. intact of God being the one who saves, God our Savior. Yeah. And that language is used in the New Testament. For example, in Titus chapter one, verses four, and, I'm sorry, verse three and four, they say, God, your savior, Jesus, your savior. They're used interchangeably. And it's not that we have two saviors and it's not that God saved us by proxy. Mm -hmm. It is that he himself is our savior who came to save us from our sins. Absolutely. And that's very significant. Huge. Yeah. Foundational. That's why, I mean, if you, if you don't get who the Trinity is and who each person of the Trinity is, then it really taints everything else. It, it's the foundation that everything is built on. And so Unitarians, you know, they unfortunately get this wrong. And it's, it's a broken foundation and it's just gonna, it just cracks the whole house. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jason. I've really enjoyed this and I hope that our listeners found it helpful. Now, let's say somebody's listening to this and they're like, this was a great intro and primer. Where can I go to find out more? Well, the Bible's a good source. Yeah. But that's, there's a lot of good resources, actually, that you can find on the internet uh, if you uh, look at different aspects of 
fighting against Unitarianism. Um, you know, Carm fights uh, against, uh, apologetically against yeah, it. Carm Christian Apologetic Research Ministry. That's right. a website that people It's a website. Visit. You can go, got questions, as always, puts really difficult questions into very simple terms. Yeah. But there's there's a lot of good websites out there. A friend of mine, Charlie Campbell, has a great website that I would recommend for anybody out there. And he has stuff on this topic, by the oh, way. Oh, good, good. His website is alwaysbeready.com. I'll have to look at that. I don't know that yeah. one. But yeah, there's a lot of good websites and a lot of great books on this topic as well. But, you know, if you do a little research, there'll be a lot because and there's a reason why there's a lot, because this is a heresy that keeps popping up, mm -hmm. unfortunately. And we want to keep doctrine biblical. And yeah. so people write some good stuff about this. Okay. Jason, thanks for being on. I hope Thank you'll you. be on in the future. I think you're great on these topics. Aw. Thank you. I'll make sure I'll join you. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. If this episode was helpful, I would be blessed and appreciate it if you would share it with somebody else. And if you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Uh, that way, when a new episode comes out, it'll be delivered right to, your, right to your device right away. And also, if you haven't done so yet, I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave a written review for me over on the Apple Podcast app. Those written reviews really serve to boost this content in their algorithm and help other people discover it as they're searching for biblical content and asking questions. So thanks for listening. I'll be with you again soon. God bless.